This week's podcast is kindly supported by NewZest. NewZest are an amazing company that have been working with us over the last few months around protein products. So today in the studio, we have the amazing Corey, and you're going to be talking to us about how you use the NewZest product. How's it going, Corey? How's it going, Robbie? I am so glad to be here, and things are going pretty well. I can't complain. I'm in uh, Florida, so the weather is perfect. I'm right next to Disney World, so I mean, I can't go wrong. Amazing. Well, you're a podcast pro uh, as well. I've been doing lots of episodes and having lots of guests, and you know, you you know how it goes. Love to hear a bit about who you are and what you do. I am a husband and a father. I've been that for 15 years, and my wife and I have been married for 15 years. We have three awesome kids. Two have been vegan since birth. I am probably, I'd say, 99% whole food, plant based on a plant based diet. My kids incorporate a little bit of the vegan cheeses here and there with the diet products and things like that. That's a little bit about me and, and our Lean Green family. Of course, I run this little blog and podcast called Lean Green Dad, and, and we love it. Tell us a little bit how you integrate a product like New Zest into your daily lives. We're all busy. I think we're all as busy as we decide to make ourselves. Uh, for me, I happen to have these three kids and you really have to be super, super selfless. And for me, getting our kids convenient snacks that we trust and really just feel good about is, is the name of the game. So my daughter's 13 and she is a competitive dancer. She dances seven days a week, absolutely intense, three, four, sometimes eight hours a day on the weekends, she will be dancing. And for someone like her who is on a vegan diet, a lot of people do wonder, hey, where do you get your protein? And so for us, anytime that we can add some extra protein, if she's going above and beyond, is very, very good, especially if it's plant-based protein. I mean, it has to be for us and our family. We've kind of found that balance between taste, like delicious taste, and efficacy, where it's super effective. She's recovering fast, she's feeling good, and she also loves the taste. So it's almost like she's cheating, you know, when she has a vanilla milkshake or a vanilla protein powder shake, or she has a, a chocolate bar. Like favorite is like the chocolate peanut butter. It's it's crazy. It's like, I don't know, back in the day when you're a kid and you try a candy bar or something, it's unreal. Corey, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It was a pleasure to hear a little bit about your story. Uh, and where can people find you? You can find us over at Lean Green Dad or leangreendad.com. So if you love the idea of NewZest, please go and grab yourself 20% off your first purchase by visiting newzest.us forward slash PBN20. You can also use the discount code PBN20 at checkout and let us know what you think in the comments. When you're talking about freeing up land too, there's also like the ethical component that we can, through these plant-based products, through cultured meat, we can help address the indigenous reconciliation we need throughout the world and actually give land back to rightful owners. This should be part of the conversation. You're not going to be doing that through any form of regenerative grazing. You're not going to be doing that through promoting meat. Because if you look back far enough and you look at the colonial history of, of different countries, a lot of indigenous land was taken away from ranching. Joining on the podcast this week is the environmental scientist Nicholas Carter, who focuses his academic research on the scientific links between food systems and planetary health. In his work, Nicholas elaborates on the impact of animal farming on climate change, highlighting how our diet and food system are responsible for climate change issues on a global scale. He's published detailed research and articles on sustainable plant-based farming practices that largely address a number of issues surrounding animal agriculture, such as water pollution, land use, and greenhouse gas emissions. Nicholas Nicholas is also a co-founder of plantbaseddata.org, an online library of peer-reviewed articles and summaries of the benefits of a plant-based lifestyle. 
It contains a multitude of environmental and health research, as well as reports, videos, and relevant podcasts. I'm delighted to welcome Nicholas onto the Plant-Based News podcast to discuss the hard scientific facts behind climate change as it pertains to food production and our diet. As always, if you like this episode, don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Nick. I'm really excited to sit down and talk to you. Really appreciate you having me. Thank you. So before we get started uh, to talk about all the incredible work that you've been doing in recent years, I would love to understand and hear how you discovered the vegan or plant-based world. Where did uh, that all begin for you? So it actually began for me uh, in my master's program of environmental science. It, it was relatively a new topic to me. Uh, I, I came to it fully from the environmental lens. It was a report by the FAO in uh, 2013 that discussed the impacts of animal agriculture from mostly a greenhouse gas uh, viewpoint. I've certainly always known somewhat of the impacts from agriculture. You know, I was mostly introduced to climate change back in 2006 during Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth documentary. This really kind of captivated me of, of, of this issue. But of course, animal agriculture was barely mentioned in that. Um, so it took uh, you know, a while later to really um, be aware of this. So uh, yeah, in my master's, it wasn't necessarily focused on that initially, but after reading a few case studies and really understanding the, the scope of the issue of animal agriculture beyond greenhouse gas emissions, but also uh, biodiversity and land use and resource use, this really struck me as not only a major impact that needs to be discussed, but also just a major opportunity to address a lot of the, the issues of today. Yeah, so in terms of like how I kind of came to vegan from there, I kind of felt like a hypocrite. So I decided to, to try it out for 30 days with, with my wife at the time. And during those 30 days, we just kind of immersed ourselves in it and learned more and saw the different angles too. And, you know, learned about other reasons too and, and how to do it right. And um, yeah, this was back in 2015. But yeah, that's, that's kind of how I first came to it. And uh, it was mostly just reading reading the science of, um, of the environmental impacts of animal agriculture. Yes, that's what I would say, like environmentalists who aren't on a plant-based diet are clearly not looking at the data. You know, this is a, a strong message and, you know, inspi- inspiring to hear someone such as yourself who, who've really, you know, gone through all the information and, and made the logical, not just the emotional, but the logical and rational choice to make personal changes. So let's zoom out uh, and, and look at this youthful world that we live on you know it's a uh, it's 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 quite an incredible place but it's in trouble and there are so many things not just on the human level but on an environmental level particularly that are going wrong wildfires raging along its southern coast and hundreds more are still missing after the worst flooding in parts of Wales. estimates that drought brought on by the effects of climate change people living in parts of england which had the highest levels of child poverty before left hundreds of thousands of people staring down the barrel of what the UN is calling the world's first climate change famine. The UN has expressed fears of a full-scale war. Let's just chat a little bit about the state of the planet. Where are we at the moment with regards to climate breakdown? Climate change is the biggest topic in this uh, situation, at least that's the one that's most discussed. And uh, globally, we've warmed about 1.2 degrees since pre-industrial times. And uh, just for perspective, the goal we set at the Paris Agreement five years ago was to limit warming to 1.5 degrees by 2100. We're on track to pass that within the decade. With the the current pledges in place and pledges made again at COP26, by 2100, we're probably going to be about 
2.7 to 3 degrees uh, Celsius of warming um, since pre-industrial times. Those numbers might not mean necessarily anything to everyone, but essentially what this means is you know, significant sea level rise, much more frequent heat waves, drought, flooding. A really unfortunate part about all this is this is going to disproportionately impact the global poor first, and they've contributed the least to this problem. This is, this is largely an issue that is exponentially uh, one of rich countries. As you spend the next two weeks debating, negotiating, persuading, and compromising, as you surely must, it's easy to forget that ultimately the emergency climate comes down to a single number. The concentration of carbon in our atmosphere. The measure that greatly determines global temperature. And the changes in that one number is the clearest way to chart our own story, for it defines our relationship with our world. For much of humanity's ancient history, that number bounced wildly between 180 and 300. And so too did global temperatures. It was a brutal and unpredictable world. At times, our ancestors existed only in tiny numbers. But just over 10,000 years ago, that number suddenly stabilized. And with it, Earth's climate. We found ourselves in an unusually benign period with predictable seasons and reliable weather. For the first time, Civilization was possible, and we wasted no time in taking advantage of that. Everything we've achieved in the last 10,000 years was enabled by the stability during this time. The global temperature has not wavered over this period by more than plus or minus one degree Celsius. Until now. One burning of fossil, our burning of fossil fuels, our destruction of nature, our approach to industry construction and learning, our releasing carbon into the atmosphere at an unprecedented pace and scale. We are already in trouble. The stability we all depend on is breaking. This story is one of inequality as well as instability. Today, those who've done the least to cause this problem are being the hardest hit. Ultimately, all of us will feel the impact, some of which are now unavoidable. You know, longer term, beyond just you know, our lifetime, but probably, well, certainly young kids today, they're going to see if we continue these emissions unchecked, you know, there's going to be waves of climate refugees going to more habitable places of the world. There's going to be uh, major polar ice caps that are melting that's going to largely flood major coastal cities. And uh, so the climate change impacts of all this is, is a big issue. You know, every year there's, there's new climate meetings and there's new IPCC reports. And they largely say over and over the issue that we already know is a problem. 
just just for perspective from this new IPCC report this year, they highlighted that methane in particular was uh, one of the major contributors. 40% of warming to date is from methane. This strikes me as important because mostly what we're talking about is, is CO2 in the media and carbon emissions and certainly focused mostly on fossil fuels. But most methane, uh, about 40%, uh, comes directly from agriculture. The vast majority of that, you know, we're talking 80% plus, comes directly from cattle, from, from belches. So methane is a huge component in terms of the, the issues with, with climate change, but even CO2, the, the big issue with, with CO2, of course, is mostly fossil fuels, but it's also land use. About 30% of historical cumulative CO2 uh, comes directly from land use change. This is just a fancy way of saying, you know, deforestation. And most of that does come from cattle ranching or feed crops uh, for confined animals. So the issue of climate change is a big one, but I mean, if I could just kind of briefly kind of widen the lens a bit further, biodiversity is also a, a major component here. Some would say biodiversity loss is an even bigger issue than climate change. Just for like a kind of a wide lens view of you know extinction events on Earth, like we've only had five in the past 540 million years. We're currently right now in, in one of the mass extinction events. People don't actually realize that this is happening because they don't see it with their own eyes. But how bad is it? Yeah, people don't see it because um, it's as bad as climate change. Biodiversity loss is, is a major issue. And uh, largely what's happening is, you know, humans and the animals that humans farm are 30 times the, the living mass of, of wild animals. So if you just look at like about 10,000 years ago before the agricultural revolution, there was about 99% of the wild biomass was wild animals. Today, 4% of mammals are wild animals and 34% are humans and 62% are, are livestock. So it just goes to show that we've really transformed the planet into uh, an animal farm. Uh, which largely was before a, a vast ecosystem of, of diverse wildlife. This is in, in big cause from food systems. This is uh, agricultural expansion into ecosystems. Uh, and it's not just on land either, it's on ocean too. About 50% of biodiversity loss uh, in water, uh, according to a new WWF report, is uh, directly from food systems. And, uh, you know, sharks are less than 10% of the original population. Whales are less than 1%. This is disproportionately from fishing and overfishing. So the biodiversity consequences of, of uh, you know, our actions are, are significant. The UN panel of experts has found that one million animal and plant species face extinction. It is worse than expected. This is happening much faster than we've ever seen before. Today, we are the asteroid that's causing many, many species to go extinct simultaneously. The evidence is that unless immediate action is taken, this crisis has grave impacts for us all. We're not just losing nice things to look at. We're losing critical parts of Earth's system. And it's threatening our food, our water, our climate. We are encroaching further and further every day into wildlife habitat, and that drives emerging diseases. If we carry on like this, we will see more epidemics, as bad as this, and some of them could even be worse. It's never been more critical for us to understand what is driving this crisis. Nick, what's the worst case scenario? So let's say all wild animals are gone. They're, you know, 10, 20 years from now, they're all, they're all dead. They're all extinct. All vertebrates are extinct. 
What does that mean for us? Animals, a, a diverse ecosystem of animals have a, a major ecosystem benefit to plants and to uh, carbon sequestration. Uh, basically, a more biodiverse region can draw down a lot more carbon. So, and, and also just that there's all kinds of other benefits that you could say benefit humans. But I think beyond, you know, what benefits us, we need to start thinking of, you know, how can we live in tandem with wild animals and not necessarily looking at every single ecosystem or, uh, you know, wild animals as something that benefits us, right? Because they have just as much of a right on this planet as everyone else. Thinking of how humans can can manage land and how humans can, can manage wildlife is a big part of how we got to this issue today. It's incredible how prolific human beings have become on the, on the, on the surface of the earth. I mean, we talked about the biodiversity loss, but the real sort of focus of that is the, the amount of land that we're using to farm animals. Would you just touch a little bit about the effect agriculture has on, on the land mass? Because obviously, as we know, most of it now is being taken up for, for farming to feed animals so that we can then consume the animals, right? Exactly. So about 50% of habitable land on the earth is directly for agriculture. More than three quarters of that, uh, one study showed 83% of all agricultural land is used for animal agriculture. And how that's broken down is mostly from ranching, uh, but secondly, from growing rows and rows of feed crops for confined animals. The manner in which we are supplying food to the world is you know, one of the worst ways you can do it in terms of the environmental impact beyond land use to climate change, to resource use, water use. Yeah, so flipping this issue around, there's major opportunities here. If we were to shift, uh, you know, in the hypothetical scenario where everyone goes plant-based or mostly plant-based, we would free up 3 billion hectares of land. That's equivalent to the entire continent of Africa. So this is, this is huge. This is huge for biodiversity, for carbon drawdown, for uh, allowing wildlife to flourish. And just in terms of addressing the climate impacts, this amount of land would draw down nine to 16 years of fossil fuel CO2 emissions by 2050. So it's just significant the way in which we use land. And this is something that should be at the forefront of every single climate discussion. Any sort of environmental discussion needs to factor in uh, land use, biodiversity, ways in which we can we can shift for the better. There's so much decline in this sort of, you know, as I use the analogy of the building falling down around us, it, it's happening so rapidly. And as Greta Thunberg often says, you know, this should be on the front page of every newspaper. COVID-19 was uh, an international disaster, which, you know, caused widespread death and uh, economic destruction. This is going to be perhaps a thousand times worse, but yet political leaders and just the general public seem so ambivalent to it. Do you feel like people are only ever going to make the changes they need once the, once a cataclysmic event changes the, the surface of the entire planet? Do you think people only act before it's too late? I mean, it's a great question. I don't know if I entirely know the answer, but people like Greta Thunberg give me a whole lot of optimism. I love everything she's about, and I love how she's living by her values and demanding urgent change and also demanding people listen to the scientists. This is amazing. This is probably one of the most positive things I've seen out of this whole movement from the last uh, you know, decade or so. Ministers from all over the world have gathered here to discuss the climate crisis. And they are pretending that they have solutions to the climate crisis and that they are taking sufficient action. But we see through their lies and we see through their blah, 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 and we are tired of it. 
They are discussing a climate emergency that is here and now, an existential crisis that is already taking lives and livelihoods for countless people all around the world, especially in the most affected areas. A climate crisis that will only get worse and worse by time, and the more we wait, the more irreversible damage we will cause. You know, I think it's important to to look at this not just from an individual person standpoint, but you know, these systemic things we have in place. Over the last century, the world has tripled meat consumption. And typically as, as countries get more wealth and become more rich, they tend to eat more uh, animal source foods. This doesn't necessarily happen because, you know, some idea of free will and personal choice. This is the, the systemic result of subsidies, lobbying, marketing, funded academics, creating these studies that are just so, you know, biased and one-sided towards only doing slight changes within uh, animal farming and, and these governments that are bailing out conglomerates like you know Tyson, Cargill, and JBS. These these are the reasons why we've gotten to the place we are. You know this is not uh, unique to animal agriculture. This is the same idea with oil. This is the same idea with smoking. Previously, we've largely um, had great progress, of course, on smoking. And uh, you know there's labels on on cigarettes saying it's cancerous. Most people know that's the case. There's some reason to be optimistic that we can we can come around to the same thing for this. In terms of like one kind of major event that uh, brings together the world to to address this, I'm not sure because in Canada where I am, we just had a major event in British Columbia and it wiped out entire highways that people use to get to and from Vancouver. And this is a major, major event. And it was from flooding and landslides. And you could attribute a lot of what happened to climate change, maybe not all of it, but most of it. And there's not one mention of climate change in, in most media reports of this. There's not one impact, one, one mention of kind of the solutions people can have or different groups and governments can do to, to prevent this. One of the other challenges that the consumer faces is misinformation, but also conflicting information, right? There's misinformation, which is often shared by people with good intentions, where they see a piece of information and they share it thinking that it's true. And then there's disinformation where it's actually purposely being created by individuals or organizations to purposely dis mislead people. We look at you know you, your research and the, and the vastly different estimations and percentages when it comes to the effects of animal agriculture. Where do you typically look to get to the bottom of what the where, where the real data is, and how do we confront all this conflicting information when it comes to the percentages and the volumes of which animal agriculture is actually causing an effect to our world? Yeah. So first, just academically, there there is a big difference between different sources of scientific evidence. Uh, obviously, peer-reviewed papers is you know a, a starting point, but of course, there's many peer-reviewed papers that uh, are heavily funded. And there's academics that are heavily funded by industry. Really off the, the top, it's those large reports like the IPCC report that has just hundreds and hundreds of scientists on, on, on staff to, to get this done. You look at the body of evidence as a whole. You want to look at several meta-analyses, alternative views than, than ones you already hold on your own. And then from there, you can kind of uh, form your, uh, you know, your opinion based on the evidence. On, uh, on my side, this was a big reason why uh, myself and a few others, we, we founded a, a big database of peer-reviewed papers called uh, plantbaseddata.org. And on here, it's all free, open access. This is just things that we've had you know, on our own uh, for some time, but we just wanted to open that to the public to see just the major scope of uh, scientific evidence calling for a shift to plant-based diets from many different angles, from the environmental angle, from health, uh, zoonotic diseases, even the economic implications. 
we don't expect obviously the public to go through everything like that, but then it's important to help uh, journalists and filmmakers and storytellers and people creating content to communicate this in ways that's not only compelling, but scientifically accurate. And that's no easy feat. And largely what is happening is, you know, where's the money? The money is within these big industries that are doing this already. So just as an example, Tyson, one of the biggest animal agriculture companies, uh, mostly for chicken, they spend double what Exxon has on political campaigns and 33% more on lobbying relative to to the revenue. Uh, This is based on like a 2021 paper of this year that looked at uh, basically all the uh, environmental net zero commitments from uh, large animal agriculture companies. Across the board, the 35 largest uh, meat and dairy companies, only four of them actually had net zero commitments. And of these net zero commitments, there was just sketchy reporting. There was things that weren't included. There was uh, offset schemes that uh, were not proven. And, you know, we can get into that, the whole regenerative agriculture thing, that's that's part of it. But, but basically, uh, these companies are not being held accountable in comparison to like the big oil and gas companies now that are starting to be held accountable to some extent. So uh, this needs to happen. This needs to change. And then from there, we're going to start seeing, you know, some, some better uh, regulations around the information that goes out there. But as long as we continue subsidizing these big companies from different governments, as long as we allow this amount of lobbying to happen, there's going to continue being misinformation. So more so than ever, like young people and uh, education at all levels needs to be taught how to critically analyze information, you know, not just believe the first thing you read, right? Because this is this is going to be continue to be an issue. Absolutely. Uh, I want to go back in time to um, 1824. <laughs> French physicist Joseph Forer wrote about Earth's natural greenhouse effect in 1824. And in 1896, Swedish chemist Savant Arrhenius concluded that in the industrial age, coal burning will worsen the global greenhouse effect. Global warming started to appear in scientific literature in 1970, and then in 1988, the climate crisis became a national issue. I mean, we have known about this issue for over a century. Um, People have been warning and banging the drum about it for such a long time. Why do you think it's taken so long for people to finally sort of accept that these are real issues and that we, we need to act urgently about it? I mean, it's a phenomenal question. It's it's a it's a complex matter in terms of why this is the case. I think it's a combination of disinformation campaigns. Uh, you can look up the hashtag Exxon New, and you can see back in the '50s, '60s, and '70s, top scientists with Exxon Mobile uh, knew about climate change, were tracking it over over time, and saw that they were a major contributor to the problem, and actively hit it, and campaigned and marketed before even the public knew it was a it was a major thing. And obviously in the late 1800s, uh, you know, it was still very brand new. So there were certainly some people sounding the horn, but it wasn't uh, to the level as, as it was later in the 1900s. I, I think there's other answers to that question too. I think, you know, building our societies based on economic growth and uh, consumption, uh, especially after uh, periods of war has contributed a lot to this issue. We still see economic growth as like the, we put it on a pedestal as the the main thing that brings prosperity to people. Infinite growth, yeah. right? What is that? Exactly. It, it doesn't exist on a planet with, with finite re- resources, right? So uh, we need to get past this. Uh, there's no way around that. We, we cannot uh, form these political parties based on expecting ex- exponential growth. So certainly in rich countries, we need to start talking about degrowth and ways to uh, reduce uh, consumption. 
this isn't necessarily a bad thing. There's many uh, areas of the world where people live very minimally in terms of uh, the amount of products and things they consume, but they have their basic needs met. They have good healthcare and education. They're among the happiest people in the world. Um, you know, you can look to Costa Rica, you can look to all kinds of different areas of the world that, that have, have done this for one reason or the other. So the area of reducing consumption doesn't mean you're losing happiness, doesn't mean you're losing like, you know, a way of life. This is just something that we need to address in terms of dealing with this crisis. The capitalist materialist world that we find ourselves in is so heavily focused around consumption. And as, as you've, we've just talked about this you know, infinite growth or, you know, economic growth, which has a ceiling. We live, on, as you say, on a finite planet with finite resources. We cannot keep continuing to take and plunder the earth like we do. Now, people out there who want to continue the status quo, maintain their lifestyles uh, to be able to continue to consume meat and, and live the way they do, often talk about regenerative agriculture and the holistic cow grazing is cited regularly as a sort of viable solution to agriculture and that we must include animals in the way we farm. Otherwise, it's just not possible. Your views and our views and my views are very, very different <laughs> to these opinions. But could you talk a little bit about regenerative agriculture and why you think it's not as sustainable as some people are making it out to be? Yeah, so on the, the fundamental thing that's being missed within the reg regenerative agriculture movement, especially the regenerative agriculture movement that involves cattle grazing and ranching, uh, because not all of it does, but that is that is the dominant narrative of this. And the fundamental thing missing is the amount of land it takes, the, the net amount of methane that's emitted. Just as one example, in, in the United States, if uh, America were to uh, not alter their beef consumption and US beef production would require about 63 to 270% more land if we wanted to shift all current factory farm beef over to grass-fed. This is, keep in mind, like right now, the livestock industry in the U.S. already uses almost 50% of all continental land in the U.S. And the numbers are similar, slightly less globally. And so this isn't just a land use problem there, but actually by shifting from feedlot to grass-fed, uh, there's been studies that show it's up to four times more methane you're going to emit. So this idea that shifting to grass-fed beef, of course, to, to some level, it might be improving some animal welfare. How great is it necessarily to increase animal welfare for like a year? Like that's basically what you're doing. Like uh, cows can live maybe not one year, but two years when I mean, they can live 20 plus years. You know, I don't buy that argument at all. Uh, but you're also increasing methane by doing that. And the, the cows are eating more fibrous diet, so more grass. And uh, they're living a bit longer. So over time, they're emitting more methane. There, there's been other studies that looked at regenerative agriculture in terms of like if it's physically possible. And one study was uh, actually out of the UK there, the combination of different universities, uh, Oxford, Cambridge University. Uh, it's called Grazed and Confused. They looked at different types of grazing systems, including so-called regenerative grazing or holistic grazing. They found that it would be physically impossible uh, for the animal protein production produced today about 27 grams per person per day to be supplied by grazing systems. Only under specific conditions can grazing actually help sequester carbon, but even then it's time limited, easily reversible, and it doesn't offset the methane emissions. So off the top, if, if any of these regenerative grazing companies want to be scientifically accurate, they need to be calling for first a major shift to plant-based diets, right? And then anything that's left, you can, you can look at optimizing grazing. But then you need to, like, the, the main ecological benefit is going to become, it's going to come from not using so much land. This is why, like, 
some of the initial reports I read on, on animal agriculture was from the FAO. And I don't agree with a lot of things necessarily that they conclude because they are very much uh, still you know, funded and within this kind of uh, idea that you need to graze animals and, and still have meat and diets. But their main ecological conclusion is you need to intensify and increase factory farming to lower the ecological footprint. Within that narrow you know, area, that, that is true. You do get a lower ecological uh, footprint in that way, but they're ignoring that we can shift systemically, at least in rich countries, to plant-based diets. And then this sidesteps that entire thing and is just a far better solution. It's so fascinating because it's people are so passionate about it. And I think one of the sort of factors involved in the conversation is culture. People don't want to let go of this idealized, romanticized view of farming, right? That they fall in love with the idea of rolling hills with cows, roaming free. But this whole idea that we should all just eat grass-fed beef from Whole Foods, it's one of privilege, really, because 95%, 98%, maybe even more of the people in the world cannot afford to eat like that. And even if we did eat like that, even, even everyone could afford to eat like that, we'd need like five planets, because there isn't enough land, as you say, to, so to live, to farm in this way. And the stupidity, really, of it blows my mind, because I guess people's sort of focus is that sort of selfishness, which is about, I want to maintain the lifestyle that I have right now. I don't want to make any changes. I love my beef and my steak, and I want to maintain that lifestyle. Now, before we sort of go into the other sort of myths around food, there are some solutions out there. I just would love to hear what you think of things like cell-based meat, cultured meat, as, a, as an environmental solution to this. We can't stop people eating these animal products, but we could use technology to give people what they want without with a fraction of the environmental footprint. But what, what is your personal opinion on these sort of solutions? When I first started looking at the environmental impact of animal agriculture, there wasn't a whole lot in terms of Beyond Meat and Possible Foods. They were just kind of starting up. This was something that uh, was, was lacking. But, you know, I also would eat more like, you know, whole food plant-based initially. But uh, yeah, I'm very, very optimistic that these companies will make a difference, both plant-based products and cultured meat in different ways. One little caveat is there's a possibility that these companies will just fulfill an ever-growing demand for meat and, and food, right? So I think it's important to support these products. It's important to uh, shift government and private funding over to these companies because across the board, they have a way lower ecological footprint. They're, uh, they're you know, at least a sidestep in terms of health, but probably a little bit better too. Uh, and in terms of zoonotic diseases, uh, just the risk is far, far lower, of course, uh, shifting away. You're not having tons of animals that are that are grown in, in tight quarters. So with that, um, yeah, these should be supported. Now, when I say about like, you know, them just fulfilling an ever-growing need for plants, this is uh, an ever-growing need for meat. This is this could be this could be curtailed with good policy and good kind of systemic solutions that that shift uh, people in this way. So it, I don't think all the onus should be on people individually. I think we need to create uh, abundant plant-based options wherever you go. You know, this has gotten way better in the last like five, six years all over the world, uh, especially in, in rich countries in Canada here, in the countries in the UK, like it's gotten way better, of course. But like, you know, schools, hospitals, they should have default options being the plant-based option. It should be abundantly available in terms of different tastes and and cultures and, and, and forms of plant-based food. When you when you do that, you're going to have a lot more people choosing it, whether it's for 
health reasons, environment. Uh, this is this is just a huge solution. Like a, another huge solution in this is the amount of land this frees up. In terms of uh, the ecological benefit of freeing up land, there was a study uh, over the University of Alberta in Canada that looked at uh, 109 different studies, and it looked at the response of animals and plants to different types of livestock grazing versus exclusion. The exclusion is really just like unmanaged rewilding. Like it's just the, the land that was retired for whatever reason. Across the board, uh, they concluded that uh, all animals, uh, across all animals, livestock exclusion increased abundance and diversity of, of different species. This in, increased, of course, vegetation and, and could even be uh, tree growth and reforestation too. So this is just a huge solution. And when you're talking about freeing up land too, there's also like the the ethical component that we can, uh, through these plant-based products, through cultured meat, we can uh, help address the indigenous reconciliation we need throughout the world and actually give land back to you know rightful owners. And this is this should be part of the conversation too, because that's a you're not going to be doing that through any form of regenerative grazing. You're not going to be doing that through promoting meat, because if you look back far enough and you look at the colonial history of, of different countries, a lot of indigenous land was taken away from ranching that's such a great point nick i love that i never really thought about that that the land stolen really from indigenous people could be returned because we no longer need it for farming again it goes back to the the g word right greed i think that is the root of most of our problems where people do do not want to share they don't want to let go that's my land i'm holding on to it that sort of scrooge mentality right sort of sitting there counting their trillions whilst people around uh, are starving. You know, that is one of the fundamental problems of our time. But going, winding back a bit to sort of the topic of the section, really, we're talking about sort of myths around food. I'd love to talk a little bit about buy local. Buying local is something you hear a lot. People say, oh, well, I buy local. I buy local meat. I'm a local meatitarian. Do you want to just sort of try and lay out like why this whole notion that buying meat locally doesn't really make any difference at all and that people are sort of, being duped really uh, by this whole notion that eating something local is going to make a huge difference to your carbon footprint. Yeah, I mean, let me just start off with saying I was duped by this too initially. You know, I definitely had, you know, this idea that buying from a local farmer's market, you know, whatever it is, is a major uh, benefit to the environment. And I'm not entirely sure why I thought that necessarily, but it's just like, I think intuitively you think if you buy something locally, it's, you know, it's traveled less miles and that maybe contributes most to uh, the environmental impact of food. But yeah, my eyes were, were opened when I, when I read the research on this. And essentially about 90% of the environmental footprint of food is in the production phase. So what's in this phase is uh, what land is used? Uh, is there deforestation involved? Uh, is there methane emissions? So in the case of cattle, there's uh, huge methane emissions for all ruminants, essentially. With that, you're going to have uh, either a big or small ecological footprint. And in terms of the transportation around the world, for some foods, it's only 1%. It's at most about 10%. You could choose the, you know, say most damaging plant-based food. Maybe pick tofu. Not that it's necessarily, you know, overly damaging, but just pick that as one example. Soy is usually vilified in, in all this. Even the worst form of, of soy is going to be less of an impact than the the best form of regenerative local grass-fed beef and the reason is because of the land use and the production and the methane emitted and as time goes on too this is only going to get better too because we're going to 
hopefully over time decarbonize a lot more of our transportation system and that's going to continue to get smaller uh, i think this is an important awareness that the people should have in terms of you know lowering your footprint and if i could just kind of like usually when i say something like that i usually get a lot of people you know coming at me over that i think it's important to know that you know you should still look to buy you know plant-based foods locally there, there's other reasons to do this uh, it's good for the local economy it's good for food security, you know, with, with COVID and, and what happened there and, and other things that could happen. You want to have a good, resilient local food system. Local vegetables, like buying your apples from yeah. your, your farmers nearby is better than having apples shipped from New Zealand or from South Africa if you're in the UK. I think the focus on buy local is really around animal products, or animal flesh particularly, just to clarify to the listener that, you know, when people say I eat local meat, that you know the production of that animal um, involves many systems particularly plant-based plant systems where things are shipped from south america or goodness knows where in the world and all the uh, you know, environmental impact of that entire process, which you mentioned, the production process, which people don't see. They see the cow in the field in Suffolk or Sussex, and they go, ah, my cow came from Sussex. So it, it, the cow was killed in Sussex, and then it only went two miles to my house. Well, the production process is invisible to them, and that's what the problem is, right? Yeah, and I think there's a misconception about how food gets around the world too. Uh, there was a study, well, it was actually from a study in 2018 from uh, Poor and Nemsec, but it was actually communicated very well through um, a group called Our World and Data. And they basically graphed out uh, where the share of uh, global food miles by transport uh, come from. And only 0.16% of food uh, comes from uh, flights from air. 58% comes from water from ship, 30% from road, and 9% from rail. So uh, yeah, if you're Choosing a food that was shipped by flight, that's going to have a much bigger impact. And I wish that was labeled. I wish it showed in the, in the you know, grocery stores uh, what, flight, what food did come from flight. But it's very little, 0.16%. Going back again to sort of like looking at the comparisons between all these different polluters that are, that are on our world, we often talk, often talk about and hear about transport being the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and therefore climate change. All the politicians are always talking about it, fossil fuels, and the footprint is obviously no doubt, you know, it's undoubtedly large. But how does it actually compare to the footprint of our food or our food print, as we sometimes say? So we put the two together. If I'm the average person, I'm flying two or three times a year, I drive a car. What is the comparison or the disparity between the effect of the transport I'm using and then obviously the transport that is intrinsic in the food that I've consumed? And there's a, this same study that I just mentioned uh, over at Oxford University uh, was based on uh, 40,000 different firms and looked at 90% of the type of food we eat. And they also did comparisons of you know, how much of a personal footprint this would reduce. And uh, a shift to plant-based would, depending on where you are, reduce your footprint by 20 to 40 percent. Uh, that 40 percent figure is actually uh, in place in the UK. It would be it's a huge benefit to to do this shift. And I think we fall into a trap of looking just at you know the the climate change impact because it goes way beyond that. Like I mentioned at the start of our our podcast here, it's um, it's biodiversity, it's land use, it's it's how we've kind of shifted the whole landscape of the world. You know, it's even beyond that. 20 to 40 percent just on like a global scale all the emissions from animal agriculture is more than all the transportation uh direct emissions combined so this is an important understanding that what we eat matters 
and what we eat matters for many, many different reasons. Do you think governments and educational bodies, universities, schools have a, a more responsibility to get this knowledge out there? And if uh, if they should, why are they not doing it? Or, or do you think, and there's a few questions in that, are, are they being blocked from doing it, do you think? Uh, well, I think it's a it's still a very politically unpopular thing to do, and that's unfortunate. Uh, it still does touch very personal, like food is personal to people. Food has become culture. I think this is a, this is an unfortunate barrier. But, you know, overconsumption is also uh, part of your culture. You know, luxury lifestyles is, is also part of, uh, unfortunately, part of many people's lifestyles. So it's not that we can't address it because of that. Uh, I think we just need to address it in, you know, an ethical way. And we need to look at fair and just transitions away from these extractive industries. I think it's, overestimated how actually politically unpopular it is. I think if you do it, if you communicate it the right way and you talk about, you know, the abundant more plant-based food options that can be put in place through policy, I think this will be this will be welcomed, you know, across party lines. Yeah, I think that's something we need to do. And I think I think we should be starting for sure in in these, you know, in schools, in hospitals, in, in government facilities, because this is what forms culture, right? What food you eat in school, what food you eat growing up is is what forms you know what food you like eating when you're older nick i just wanted to ask you about dr Salesh rao and his kind of opinions and views he has quite a controversial kind of perspective on uh the, the climate crisis he talks about this 80 80 plus percent figure uh how animal agriculture actually causes this have you had a chance to look through his data or his research because it's quite an unconventional way to look at the problem. And often people talk about, you know, there's this analogy of like, there was a king and he said to all his scribes, describe the elephant to me. And they're all blinded with like blindfolds and they're all feeling the elephant in a different way. Selesh, Dr. Selesh is like one of those scribes, but he's like on a totally different end of the elephant. And it seems kind of far out there and wacky. But is there any merit into anything he said if you have had a chance to look through his data? I have. So uh, my, my thesis work actually was looking at the uh, direct greenhouse gas uh, impacts of animal agriculture and looking at the various estimates. And this was before he published his, his research, but the 51% figure was there. I think Dr. Salas Rayo has contributed a lot of positive things to, to this movement. I think he's a, he's a, he's a great person. He's, he's very bright. Uh, I don't agree with that 87% figure for a number of reasons. And uh, I've made a few posts on that on, on my social media, just kind of describing where I stand. I think those extreme estimates as a, just a general rule and a general thing of caution for people, those outlier estimates... Uh, require even more evidence. I think a lot of what he's produced as like is a it's kind of a shot at the FAO who says 14.5% of greenhouse gas emissions as a total are attributed to animal agriculture. And I don't agree with that either. But I think going the other extreme is not uh, necessarily doing anyone any favors either. Where where I would stand in it is is probably around like the 28 to 35% estimate. And the 28% estimate is from Joseph Poor and Thomas Nemzek. Uh, 2018 paper out of Oxford University. This is just based on including some carbon opportunity cost of land. And what I mean by that is uh, some opportunity to draw down carbon from rewilding and reforestation. Also, it looked at uh, a number of different, you know, full life cycle uh, parameters that, that weren't included in the FAO's analysis. And I think from there, you can go probably a little bit higher if you are optimistic about how much land we can actually uh, rewild and reforest over time. As soon as you get up to that figure over 45, over 50%, I think you're doing a major disservice to the the real impacts of fossil fuels uh, that have contributed to this problem. And I think you're making some assumptions that could 
could be very damaging to addressing uh, this other major issue too. But you know, where we agree is there is two overarching major issues with climate change, and that's uh, agriculture and that's uh, fossil fuels. I think we both agree on that. And the the game of picking percentages, I don't necessarily think it's helpful. And I learned that over time after doing a lot of my thesis work. I think we need to look at many different solutions and, and from these solutions, see how different people, different organizations, different governments can help contribute to addressing them. One of the things that have massively impacted our culture are zoonotic diseases. Three out of four infectious diseases in humans come from animals. The 1918 Spanish flu was caused in part, mostly, I guess, by chickens. Um, 55 million people died, and we didn't even have international air travel then. Pretty terrifying that something like that could rear its head again on Earth. Obviously, COVID-19 has killed a lot of people, and influenza like that could wipe out even more now now that we travel the way that we do. Um, the pandemic obviously shifted our, pa- our habits. It completely halted transport on a global scale. It's changed the way we live as people. What are some of your observations and findings as a result of the pandemic? Have you seen any patterns? Are there things that you think that you know we have changed because of COVID-19? Well, during COVID, I, I looked at, um, for, for like kind of an investigative uh, piece I wrote, I looked at different countries' response to COVID initially in like, uh, you know, March of 2020. And deforestation went through the roof. Deforestation in countries like Brazil largely went unchecked. There was like the global focus was on addressing COVID and yeah, and getting people to not necessarily travel. But uh, but in terms of like erosion of nature, it increased uh, to a huge level. Um, I- I'm hoping you know the pandemic has brought more awareness of of this and the benefit of protecting nature and avoiding. Uh, pandemics and the benefit of not uh, not confining all these animals together because we could have a far worse zoonotic disease, you know, if we continue doing this. I think this has helped the narrative of regenerative uh, grazing. It's prying on those uh, notions people have that shifting to grass-fed beef is going to be, you know, a, a more eco-friendly way. None of the studies that look at the benefit of grass-fed beef uh, compared to rewilding and compared to an untouched ecosystem that store far more carbon, that are more biodiverse. Most of these deceptively will compare to a previous form of overgrazed land or an industrial cropland. I, I think the pandemic has also had a lot more wealth accumulation over this time. So it's really a time to you know double down on the awareness and people like yourselves to communicate the, the evidence and filmmakers to tell the story of how we can kind of uh, understand these impacts, but also translate it to solutions. I agree. Uh, there's a lot of responsibility floating around. And with that, I would love to ask you, how do you feel about the future? Because there's so many negative things in front of us on a daily basis. When you look at the numbers, the cold hard numbers of what we're doing to our home, the greenhouse gases, the greenhouse gas emissions, the the species extinction, the river acidification, the deforestation. You have you have children, don't you? And like, how do you feel about the future? I know it's a deep question. It's probably not really a simple answer, but how do you feel, especially someone who's seen the data, who's looking at it all the time? Do you feel hopeful for the future? Do you feel like we're going to turn things around? Or as I spoke to Keegan Cunha the day was like I don't feel hopeful he was really honest he was like I think humanity's completely screwed themselves <laughs> like how do you feel yeah I, I'm not hopeful uh, I, I don't have this like idea of like um, like this false hope and like overly optimistic take on things I think this is this got us a bit into this problem uh, thinking that you know the future technology will solve all this or 
uh, you know, we'll finally wake up and do this. I'm not hopeful. I think I think we're at the point now where we need to uh, actively mobilize and uh, scientists need to speak out more and become activists and demand changes from government. The only thing that probably gives me hope is that it seems like the young people of today are uh, really taking this on. More people are going into environmental science. More people are demanding that they want a future that is close to the resemblance of the society we have today. You know, what I think is going to happen is I think it's going to take you know some sort of major event where, where countries start demanding changes from other countries. And it's going to be probably a bit worse before it gets better. I really don't think we need to wait for any sort of solution. We have all the solutions to fix these issues of climate change, biodiversity loss, land use. It, it really just takes some, some leader to spark some systemic changes. It takes a whole lot of young people and in old people just to kind of change their individual actions and be that kind of lighthouse to, to to spark others around them to change. With that, you know, there's there's some optimism that we will see see changes. Um, really, there's no way around it. We need to do these changes or life is going to get a lot worse for, you know, our generation and future generations. We'll be looked back on as a society that contributed a lot to these issues. You know, a book that kind of interests me in this kind of like future perspective of all this would be one called Ministry for the Future. Very good book. It, it looked at kind of future generations a couple of decades from now uh, and what they're doing to make up for our generations that didn't do what needed to be done based on the Paris Agreement. So, you know, I couldn't explain it uh, overly well right now, but it's worth checking out for anyone that kind of wants to uh, see the scientific evidence, but also told in like a nice story. Do you think responsibility for a lot of these things lay solely on individuals or do you think there needs to be a system change? Because a lot of the time, the problem that faces us, a lot of individuals, including myself, feel very overwhelmed about whether we can actually work our way out of this problem or not. Do you think there needs to be more responsibility placed on corporations than individuals? Or do you think it's really all about the consumer and our behavior? Yeah, I mean, this is a really great question because this is something that comes up so often. I think it's it's absolutely it's both. We need to be individually responsible and we need to advocate for the systemic change we want. There's a lot of damaging communication out there saying that we just need to you know, address the 100 companies that are have done the most damage. I think it's naive because I think it's individuals collectively wanting to create a better world that is more eco-friendly and also can create a, a more well-being. It's these individuals that will create that systemic change, right? It's not just going to be one person that all of a sudden decides, okay, I want to create this new world where everyone is plant-based. It's not going to work unless we have all kinds of people that are also advocating for that too. There's something to be said about perfection is the enemy of good. I don't think we need a whole lot of people to be perfect. I think we, we need everyone to do what they can with what they uh, have. And, and, you know, given their history, given their upbringing, these are things we should factor into to people. And, uh, you know, as a general rule for the individual component to this, you know, just don't be judgmental, right? Do what you can that's, that's the best. And some people aren't ready to, be, to, to receive new information. And sometimes just planting that seed is, is, is enough to kind of make someone come back to it later. Before we let you go, I also would like to obviously learn a little bit more about plantbaseddata.org um, and understand like what's in there. You're obviously the co-founder, as you said. How do people use that as a big database to search? Who can use it? Is it all free? What's the situation with it? So this is something that I started with a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Tushar Mehta. He's a uh, ER doctor in Toronto. He's well studied in the health benefits of shifting to a plant-based diet. Uh, he also was, um, you know, very well read in the ec ecological impacts and zoonotic diseases. So we basically both had these large databases of peer-reviewed papers that we've collected over time for our own 
uh, research and just thought, well, let's just put this out there to access for everyone because the, the level of time and effort it takes to start reading through some scientific papers and also just finding the good stuff, it, it's very time consuming. So we basically eliminated a lot of that initial step. And I know it's been impactful for you know investigative journalists and different people that want to kind of dig into it from an academic or student perspective. Uh, it's all open access. It's all free. I think it's probably one of the largest databases of peer-reviewed papers related to the need to shift to a plant-based diet. And we don't only put the paper on there, but we also do summaries of it. You know, a couple just key takeaways that we think are important to be aware of. And, you know, it's still very grassroots. There's only a few of us. This is like a side project that we're both working on, but it's certainly something that uh, that I know has been a, a good help to many. And what's in the future for you at the moment? Have you got any uh, big plans for any new projects? So I'm doing a lot of work with um, uh, a climate services center in Canada, communicating a lot of the primary data around uh, the climate crisis is a more wider thing. Um, I'm working on a, a study specific to Canada that's looking at the uh, impacts of animal agriculture and uh, opportunities to to shift away. And I think this study that I'm doing in Canada will be useful for other countries too, because one of the the rebuttals that people advocating for a plant-based diet will get is, you know, their country's data that shows uh, agriculture is only responsible for five or 10 or, or you know, 13, 14% of emissions. And I just think that that not telling the full story at all. It's really just looking at direct emissions and looking at it from a very narrow lens. So I think it's important to, to kind of dive into the scientific literature to communicate that better. And I think that'll be useful for, for other countries too. And just uh, a few of the things like that that I'm, that I'm working on, that just trying to, uh, to get the awareness out on this topic. Before I let you go, Mr. Carter, I would like to ask you one final question. I always ask my guests this at the end. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, obviously you wouldn't eat the pig because you're plant-based. But if I gave you one vegan dish, one music album, and one book, what would you take with you on your desert island? Uh, for for a dish, I would say probably something Mexican-inspired. Uh, you know, like uh, burritos, tacos. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Rice and beans is just like a staple. I just love it. And it's, it's healthy. It's, it's yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, music album. Um, yeah, I don't know. Probably, uh, you know, I think if I was on like a, a desert island, I'd want something like very tropical, very like zen and very like calm. So probably just something like, uh, you know, Jack Johnson or even like classical or something like that. I think I would love that. and uh, a book um you know i read so much of my free time is is spent reading uh, a lot of different uh you know sci-fi and uh and also just like books that are trying to communicate the scientific evidence and i actually generally enjoy reading that stuff so uh, one that I actually have just I bought recently that I'm, I'm going to read is called the Red Meat Republic. And it's all about the colonial history of red meat and how this has kind of shifted over time. And, you know, some might see that as, oh, well, you're kind of doing work. But no, I, this is something that I enjoy kind of reading. And it's, you know, it's history. It's, it's, it's important kind of uh, to be aware of that stuff. So I'd probably read that. Amazing. Mr. Nicholas Carter, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It was uh, fascinating to hear all your thoughts and ideas and research. 
Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie. This is a PBN podcast. We'll be back next week with more veganism, food, fashion, environment, animals, and everything in between.